to the Lord. If you don't have one, then I'm seriously content. Father, thank you so much for all of your goodness to us, but thank you this morning for your power, which is available to us by your Holy Spirit in our lives. You have commanded us to pray and ask for your working. Forgive us, Father, for how often we don't do that when we seek to figure things out on our own, when we try to muscle through, when we try to just exert our will on a situation. Forgive us for that, Father, for for we know your word tells us that you are willing to work in our lives. You want to hear from us. You desire more than anything else that your people would submit themselves to you, would fall on their faces before you and beg for your working. And, and Lord, we, we know that. Most of us that are here this morning, we know that. We've heard that many times. And yet, so many times we don't do it. And I pray that you would just soften our hearts this morning, Lord, whatever it is that is going on in people's hearts and minds that are here this morning, I pray that you would just help them to be able to set those distractions aside. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak very clearly to us this morning, that we would hear the truth of your word, that it would penetrate through the walls that we put up, our own stubbornness and self-will, and that we would understand what it is that you want us to know this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I thank you for everyone who comes up to me after a service and says, did you know that you take your watch off every week before you start? Yes, thank you. I I do know that I do that. It's not completely unconscious. And it's for you, by the way. Because sometimes when I glance down, I see my watch and I say, oh, man, I got to move it. I got to speed up. Or sometimes, I know this is hard to believe because I'm usually, I usually don't respect the clock very much when I'm up here, but believe it or not, sometimes I leave out whole sections so that you won't be really mad at me. So yes, I know I take the watch off. It's a good thing. Last uh, couple of weeks ago, I had three watches and none of them were working. That was a rough week. So uh, many, many years ago, one time we were on vacation as a family. I think Gavin was probably about four years old, so it was a long time ago. And uh, we were given tickets to a minor league baseball game. And it was a beautiful sunny day, and so off we went. And uh, for those of you that know me very well at all, you know that I love baseball. And so I was excited to introduce Gavin to the game of baseball, and we got to the to the park, to the stadium, and he was just, he was captivated by all the sights and sounds. When Gavin was younger, he, he uh, had a lot of energy, and he didn't stand still very well, and, and when we went in, all the stimulation of that ballpark, I mean, he was just captivated by it. the people, uh, the cheers. He loved the seats that when he slid off his seat, the, the seat bottom flipped up. He thought that was cool, so we played with that for a while, and Uh, The snacks, of course, are very important. There was a playground out in left field, and we took all of it in. In fact, I'm not sure if he even noticed that there was a ball game because of all of the other things that were happening. Uh, The reality is that he missed the whole point of the afternoon. But he was four years old, and that happens. 
In fact, that happens to us sometimes as adults, doesn't it? Sometimes we're in the middle of something and we're aware of something and yet we miss the whole point. And I think that might be the case with our topic today. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the church. What is it that should distinguish the New Testament church from the rest of the world? We have talked about the fact that we are the called out ones. We are called to be distinct from the world. We should, we should be able to see a difference and the world should be able to see a difference between us and them. We've talked about the fact that we follow the scripture, that we fellowship together, that we worship by singing together, that we have a mission, that we have godly leaders. And last week we talked about the command to pursue holiness. And the seventh thing in our list that we're looking at in this series this morning is that we pray. Or we should pray. We should pray daily, we should pray hourly, we should pray constantly. The Word of God says, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, that we should pray without ceasing. Some of you may be familiar with that verse. And certainly we could spend the next half an hour talking about how much we should pray. But today I really want to talk about why we pray. Now, we might pray because we know it's commanded of us, and that's true, it is. We might pray because we want others to see us. We might pray because we want others to think highly of our godliness. We might pray because we have needs and problems, and we want God to know about them so that he can fix them. but I think we might be missing the point. We must not pray because of guilt. We must not pray to display our piety. We must not pray because we think that we're extracting a blessing from a reluctant God. The purpose of prayer is to commune with God and to submit ourselves to his will and his provision for us. In prayer, we do not seek to bend God to our will. Rather, we should be seeking to bend our will to God's. Now this morning we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. One is in Matthew and one is in Ephesians. So we're going to turn to the Matthew one first. Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew 6. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen that we're going to be looking at. But we're going to see here something very interesting, something that, that maybe you may not have thought about before, and it's this. Not all praying is good. Did you know that? Not all praying is good, and there are wrong reasons and methods for prayer. And so when Christ was on this earth and he was spending time with his disciples, he decided to teach them how to pray, and that's what we're going to look at here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. And as we go down through this passage, there are going to be some verses here that I'm guessing that almost everyone is going to recognize. But we start in Matthew 6 and verse 5, and this is what Jesus says. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Interesting passage. Not all prayer is good. In fact, God calls out some of the people for their praying. First of all, I want you to notice the word prayer. It's used 86 times in the New Testament, and it means, it implies to come to God or to move toward God. I think this is significant because so much about prayer, if our prayer is going to be effective, and that's what we're talking about here this morning, it has to do with our posture before God. And we're going to see that a little bit more momentarily. But I want you to understand this. God does not come to us in prayer. We go to God. I mentioned before just a moment ago that we need to make sure that we're not praying like we're trying to convince a reluctant God, a God who does not want to hear us. When we're praying, we're not trying to lure God toward us like you might lure a squirrel with some peanuts in the park. Prayer means to come to God. We are coming toward him. Now, these verses could be misinterpreted to mean that it's wrong to pray in public. When we read it that way, that might be what comes to us at first glance, but that's not the case. Scripture is full of instances of people praying in public and in community and full of commands for us to pray in public and to pray in community. But what is condemned here is the motivation. He said, don't pray like those hypocrites. Actually, the word hypocrite is the word that was used in this culture to describe an actor, a stage player, someone who had a script and was told to act a certain way. That's the word that is used here. In this case, their prayers had nothing to do with God. It was all about being seen. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement here that I think we need to be aware of. It's it's a challenge that we need to pay attention to, and it's this. Jesus says, if you pray this way, you might get the approval of people, and if you have, that's all you're going to (laughs) get. If you're praying to be seen by others, There won't be anything more to be had from that prayer. We might say it this way. It's certainly not wrong to be seen praying, but it is wrong to pray in order to be seen. In fact, Jesus here advocates praying in private. Again, not prohibiting praying in public, but he advocates praying in private. Why is that? Well, I don't know about how you pray in private. I hope you pray in private. But I know how I pray in private, and some of the ways I pray in private, I would not do in public. When I pray in private, I ask a lot of questions. (laughs) God, why? Why are you doing this? Help me understand. I don't get it. I don't see what you're doing. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand the reasons behind this. When I pray in private, sometimes I pause. I pray and then I wait. I stop. I think. I listen. 
When we pray in private, we can groan, we can cry, we can listen, we can bear our souls. When we pray in public, be be aware of our motivations. That's that's the message here. Look at verse 7. Christ continues, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So not only are there wrong motivations for prayer, but there's wrong methods too. He says don't heap up empty phrases. That literally means to ramble and repeat empty words. So not only should we not pray to be seen, but we shouldn't pray to be heard either. Sometimes I ask people to pray if if I'm in a group of people or, or if I'm in my small group sometimes or meeting with folks and ask them to pray, a lot of times they hesitate. And when someone hesitates when you ask them to pray or when I've asked them to pray, I think most of the time it's because they're afraid they don't, they're afraid they don't know the right words to say or they are, they're afraid that they don't know the right way to do it. But let me tell you this, my friends. If you can talk, you can pray. Genuine prayer is sincere, it's straightforward, and it's simple. In fact, if you come to the prayer time tonight and we get ready to pray, you will probably hear me say something like this. When we pray, let's do it this way. Pick one thing to pray about and just pray that. It doesn't have to be long. Don't use fancy words. Just pray one or two lines. Just pray what's on your heart. And then the next person will pray. It's simple and straightforward. We don't need techniques in order to pray. We need humility. And here is the reality. We saw it in verse number 8 when I read it for you a moment ago. The reality is this. God already knows what's on your heart. He already understands what's in your mind. He already understands what's burdening you. He already understands what it is that you're going to say. And when we pray, God doesn't listen because of our skillfulness. He doesn't listen because of our vocabulary. He doesn't listen because we have that special tone that we use when we pray. Have you ever heard somebody pray like that? It drives me absolutely insane. When someone gets up and they say, Oh, Lord, most high and holy one, and start going off like, You've never talked like that a day in your life. That's not why God listens to us. God listens to you and he listens to me because of his compassion for us. He listens to us because he loves us. Not because of how we say things. And we go on here to the next verse, verse 9, and Jesus gives us a model for prayer. Now, we often call this the Lord's Prayer. Some of you may have gone to churches before where the Lord's Prayer was, was quoted together at some point in the service. I want you to just notice as we look at this 
that Christ is giving the disciples a pattern for prayer, a model for prayer. Now, th this is a great prayer. <laughs> Jesus prayed it, so I'm going to say it's probably, you know, in the top five, right? Because Christ prayed it. But I just want you to be careful as we look at it to understand that Jesus himself says, this is a pattern for prayer. You don't have to pray these words. This is not a mantra. This is not a magical series of words that if you say them, things will happen. It's a pattern for prayer. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus says, here's the pattern. Start by putting God on the throne. By the way, the source of every problem we have in our lives, every struggle with sin, every falling to temptation, every difficulty that we bring on ourselves originates with the fact that God is not on the throne of our lives. So Jesus says, when you pray, let's start here. Put God on the throne. Hallowed be your name. The word hallowed literally means to ascribe holiness. Now, if you were here last week and your memory is above average, and you can remember what we talked about, we talked about pursuing holiness, and we said the word holiness means set apart from sin or sacred and we said that God is the ultimate in holiness. He is completely set apart. He is completely unique in every way. He is set apart. And here Jesus says we need to ascribe holiness to God. We need to celebrate God's set-apartness. This is why we pray. This is why I don't get down on my knees and pray to Joe. Now, I like Joe. Actually, I like Joe quite a bit. He is a good friend of mine. But I don't pray to Joe because Joe is just like me. He's a good guy. He works hard. He does his best. But he can't affect the outcome of my life. He can't provide the strength that I need to do what God is calling me to do because he's, we're the same. We're, we're guys, we're husbands, we're dads. We pray to God because he is set apart. He is on the throne. And we need to start when we pray by acknowledging that God is the only one who can bring anything to bear on our lives that is going to make any kind of meaningful difference. It's interesting even that Jesus said we, need, we should pray our Father. Now the Jews, and Jesus was talking to a bunch of Jews here, his disciples were all Jewish, and Jesus himself was Jewish, the Jews stressed God's sovereignty and his glory so much so, maybe some of you know this, but the Jews would not even say God's name out loud. Wouldn't even say his name. He's God. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's powerful. But look, Jesus says, 
Call him Father. Call him Father. Jesus is already symbolically breaking down the barriers between God and mankind. Now he's going to literally do that shortly after this when he goes to the cross to provide our salvation through his sacrificial death. But he's already symbolically breaking down those barriers. Why does he do that? Because we acknowledge God's holiness, we acknowledge his uniqueness, his set-apartness, but it's possible that we might feel unworthy or even frightened to enter into his presence. Have you ever felt unworthy to come into the presence of God? Do I really have the right to do this? Should I even ask God this? Should I say this? Jesus says this mighty, glorious, powerful, sovereign God is what? Our Father. He's our Father. Last week, again, if you were here last week, I mentioned my dad and how I seem to be morphing into him in so many ways the older that I get. And I think that's, for the most part, that's a good thing. Um, one of the ways, however, in which my dad and I are completely different is physically. Um, I've never been very big. In fact, I think when I graduated from high school, I weighed 135 pounds, uh, which was <coughs> pounds ago and 35 years ago. Uh, but my dad is kind of built more like a brick wall. His shoulders are about this wide, and his hands are the size of dinner plates. He's not very tall, but he has always been big and strong. Uh, and I've always been kind of scrawny and weak. Uh, but you know what? When I was a kid and when I was a teenager and I needed something... I was not afraid to go and speak with him. I was not afraid to go into his presence and ask for what I needed. Do you know why? Because he was my father. And I knew that he loved me. And that's what Jesus is saying to us here. Look, God is on the throne of heaven. But he's your father. And he loves you. So we begin by worshiping and acknowledging his power. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're commanded here, Jesus says we should pray for the establishment of his kingdom. Now on the one hand we might say, well you just said that God is on a throne, so why are we talking about his kingdom? If he's on the throne that means he's the king. Yes, that is true, but there is much about God's kingdom right now that is not evident. You might be looking around the world and noticing that lately. It's not evident. And so Jesus says, pray that his kingdom will become more and more evident. How does that happen? Well, I think part of this prayer is evangelistic. I think when we're praying, your kingdom come, we're praying that more people would come to understand salvation, that would come to understand God's love for them and that they would trust Christ. I think we're also praying for Christ's return when we pray this. Your kingdom come. 
I don't know about you, but I've kind of ramped up my praying for God's kingdom coming to this earth lately. Your will be done. Well, there's two places God's will needs to be done. It needs to be done in your heart and life and in the world. And I think he's referring to both of those things here. We need to know God's will and we need to have the strength to do it. We need to pray for the revealing of and the obedience to his principles in us. But we're also asking that that would happen in the world as well. That his will would be done. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We must acknowledge our dependence on God. I want you to see this, my friends. God does want us to bring our needs to him. He does want us to pour out our hearts to him in this way. We're encouraged to come with him, come to him with our requests. After we've focused our attention on him, after we have prayed for his will, he commands us to pray for our daily bread. Now, I think that phrase is very interesting, our daily bread. First of all, the word daily one day at a time, stresses our need, our dependence on him. I think we should be continually coming to God. I think every day we should be bowing before God, acknowledging his kingship and his lordship, asking for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, and asking for him to supply our needs. Every day I think we should do that. I tell you one thing, folks, I, I, I think we're awfully comfortable in this country. We have a lot, and I think it leads to us not taking this as seriously as we should. Our daily bread, why does he say bread? Well, in my mind, Christ commanding us to pray for our daily bread stresses our needs over our wants. You know how we always joke around, you know, if there's nothing in the house, well, we could have bread and water, and that's a downer, right? Nobody wants just bread and water. Well, in much of the world, bread is still a staple. If you don't have bread, you don't survive. You may not have meat, maybe a luxury, but if you have bread, you can live. And I think that's what Christ is saying to us here. I found this quote this week. It's from John Stott, who was an author and a teacher. He said, God is not ignorant that we need to inform him, nor is he uncaring that we need to persuade him. God knows what we need. He loves us, and so he wants to supply what we need. But we are asked to pray. Why? Because it refocuses us on God and on his provision. Once again, we live in such a land of plenty that it's easy to forget that everything that we have, we have because God gave it to us. I'm going to take a little straw poll here. How many people in the last, I'm going to be generous, how many, how many people in the last six months at some point have thought, man, I could use a little more I'll let you fill in the blank. Money, uh, space in your home, a better car, whatever. In the last six months, okay, just thought, man, I could use a little more. Who's 
willing to be on. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured. Pretty much everybody. Did you know that the median income in the world, the median income in the world is $850 a year? Did you know that if you make $41,000 a year, you are in the top 3% of earners in the entire world? Do we have a lot? Yeah, we have a lot. Give us today our daily bread. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Please don't forget, my friends, that forgiveness is our chief spiritual need. And it's not a one-timer. You know, like while I asked God to forgive me when I got saved, I asked him to forgive my sins. That's good, that's right, that's necessary. But guess what? You and I need forgiveness every day. It's continual. Thankfully, wonderfully, God's grace is greater than I sin. And of course, he loves it when we obey. But when we disobey, he still loves us and he forgives us when we sin and repent. And Jesus says we need to pray for that forgiveness, constantly praying for that forgiveness. And when we experience God's mercy and grace to us, in spite of our massive offense to him because of our sin, it ought to cause us to see the offenses against us from others in a different light. I think that's why he combines this. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christ commands us to pray for grace to face difficulty and sin. Now, don't misunderstand this verse, because James 1 tells us that God does not tempt us to sin. But we can pray for him to lead us away from temptation. When you are tempted, James says, it's because you have sinful desires in your heart and Satan is enticing you. That's what temptation is. God doesn't tempt us, but we can pray for his strength and his guidance to lead us away from temptation, to keep us out of situations that would tempt us to sin. And deliver us from evil, trial and difficulty, certainly. We won't avoid it completely in our lives. All life involves difficulty. But we can pray for grace to stand. And we can pray for his grace to rescue us. Now I want to ask you this. Do you pray I mean really pray. I'm, I'm not just talking about saying grace before your cheeseburger. I mean really pray. And if you do, why do you pray? Don't miss the point. The purpose of prayer is to commune with God and to submit to his will and his provision for you. That should distinguish us from the world. That should distinguish our church from the world. 
and we must pray these things for each other. I want to read you a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 1 as we close here this morning. Ephesians 1 verse 16 says this. This is Paul writing. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So first of all, we see that, that prayer was a priority for Paul. I don't cease to pray for you. Dozens of times we see Paul praying for his fellow Christ followers. This needs to be a priority for us. We need to be focused on prayer for other people. But here's what I want you to notice in these last moments. Notice what he prays for. This is verse 17 of Ephesians 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Simply put, Paul prayed for the spiritual needs of others. That was his focus. That was his focus. Wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Now, as we saw... And we're encouraged to bring our needs to the Lord, to bring our physical needs and the physical needs of other people to the Lord. That's not wrong. But the greatest need that your fellow Christ followers have, the greatest needs that anyone has, are spiritual. What benefit is good health a warm home, and a full belly if you're going to spend eternity in hell. Christ said that. Christ said it is a shame for someone to gain the whole world and to lose their life. Now sometimes we meet those needs in order to build connections but the greatest need that anyone has is Christ. And the greatest need that we have as believers is the strength of Christ. Verse 18 says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can gain insight and wisdom. Last week we saw that we are called to holiness. Here Paul says we're called to hope. We need that. We need hope. I need hope every day. You need it. This world needs hope. And we need to pray it for each other. Verse 19, the last verse I read for you. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. We need hope, and we need to be reminded of the immense power of God. The tremendous, incomparable power of God gives us hope, and we must be praying. Our church, our lives must be characterized by that kind of prayer, prayer that God would unleash his power in our lives and in this community and through our church to people who need to know Christ, that every moment of every day we need him. That should be why we pray. If that's not why you pray, 
I want to challenge you this morning to examine your heart. In Christ alone, all hope is found. May our prayers direct us to him who holds all things in his hands. Till he I was in the car yesterday and I saw a sign in front of a store. I don't know why they put this on the sign, but it says, Want to know what someone believes? Watch what they do. I think that's characteristic of us in prayer, my friends. Let's not talk about what we believe about prayer. Let's do it. If you believe that God has all power, if you believe that God is on the throne, then let's let our lives be characterized by our pouring our hearts out to him to ask for his power to be unleashed in us, in this community, in this country. Pray for the spiritual needs of this world in yourself, in your friends, in your family greatest needs you have they have are spiritual Father thank you for the privilege that we have to pray and if you would please forgive us for the casual way that we treat it most times we know that Jesus Christ our mediator stands before your throne interceding for us And we can come to your throne with confidence to find the grace that we need to help in our time of need. There is great need in this world. There's great need today in the country of Turkey. There are millions of people who are displaced, who are without homes, who have lost loved ones. We have no idea what's going to happen next. And even yet, in that devastating circumstance... For many of them, for most of them, their greatest need is spiritual. They need Christ. For us, Father, we need you. We need forgiveness. We need strength. And for every person that's here this morning, Lord, whatever it is that they're going through, whatever's happening in their families, whatever's happening in their hearts, I know that they need you. They need your power, your intervention. I'm praying that for them this morning. I pray that each person here would pray that for themselves and that we would in turn pray for it for each other. Thank you for all you have done for us, Father, and thank you for your patience with us. We pray your grace for every moment of every day. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. I hope you have a great week.